You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, 2020 has been a roller coaster ride. How many of you feel like February was like a year or two ago? Feels like that, doesn't it? We've had a lot of ups and downs this year, and this has been an anxiety-riddled year. And so today we want to look at, and I want to invite you to keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 41. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, there's a black book in front of you, page 714 in that book. We invite you to turn along with us. During the pandemic, we saw empty streets. We saw empty shelves in grocery stores. We've seen empty churches, and we're seeing empty stadiums. It has been a roller coaster ride of a year. And many people are battling great anxiety, not only because of the virus, but because of the chaos due to an election year and the chaos due to contemporary events that are highly politically charged. Isaiah chapter 41 has an answer for our year. You're going to see, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 7, a courtroom trial scene. This is a scene where God is both judge, jury, bailiff, and prosecuting attorney. In fact, the trial scene that you have set in front of you is to bring the nations to judgment. You'll notice that in verse 1, the word judgment. In fact, what you see there is the word coastlands at the end of verse 1, which speaks of distant nations. The nations are in the trial, they're in the courtroom as representative of the idle counterfeit gods. You'll notice in verses 2 through 4, as you're looking at Isaiah chapter 41, that God makes the case against the nations and their counterfeit gods like a prosecuting attorney. In fact, all of this is done because the Bible says he is superintending, moving aside the events of 2020 for a greater and bigger purpose. A young mother, Kelly, along with her husband and three children were riding in a van during the pandemic, especially during the shutdown, when Kelly's seven-year-old said, Mommy, I think God has given us the coronavirus so that we could spend more time together as a family. Now, that's a cute and heartwarming sentiment. But does God have his fingers even in a virus? Would he be involved in something like the chaos of this year. What tells me, a recent poll does, that more than the seven-year-old believes this. 63% of religious Americans, when polled, says that God has a message for us in the events of the year. In fact, I like what a 52-year-old man named Lance from Pennsylvania said, and I quote, it could be a sign like, hey, get your act together, end quote. Does God have anything to do with what's happening in the events of this year? I'm going to look at four questions, four questions for God from Isaiah chapter 41 that press upon what we're seeing today. First, does God work like karma? Many people feel like that God is karma or karma is the way he acts. Karma is a Eastern philosophy, but it's this idea that when something happens, God's dropping the anvil on me, that he's punishing me for something I've done. Are the events of 2020 a result of something that you've done or that we have done? And that's a question that's pretty prevalent down throughout time. 
And what we ask is God like karma. Karma is an informal word that speaks of cause and effect. It speaks of a cruel God, a God that always punishes by sending suffering. It's a proportionate response if we were in the situation room. God in the heavens, if you worked by karma, would see your sin and he would send suffering to you immediately. You'd be a proportional response. Does God work like karma? Jesus was asked this question in a different way. The disciples saw a man that was born blind. They asked Jesus, is this man born blind because something he did or something his parents did? Jesus said, neither. God does not work like karma. He is not cruel. But keep in mind something powerful that this passage is teaching. God does use evil and suffering as a tool in his hand while being perfectly good all the time. God can use evil and suffering as a tool in his hand while being perfectly good all the time. And secondly, God does punish sin because he is righteous. In the moments to come, let's unpack that in looking at chapter 41. Look at verse 2 with me. The Bible says here, who stirred up, look at these next three to four words, one from the east. Do you see those words there? One from the east. Verse 2, written 2,700 years ago, is speaking of a Persian ruler by the name of Cyrus. Now, how do we know that? Well, if you turn to chapter 44, you can do so later. There in verse 28, you'll find the identity of this one named Cyrus. Cyrus would be in some respects, the Hitler of his day. He was a world-dominating ruler. The, the thought of such a one would have panicked everyone, would have brought panic to all those. He is one who comes from the east. Modern-day Iran would have been ancient Persia, and he would strike fear in everyone. Now, notice what the Bible says here. It does not say, what stirred one from the east? Does your Bible have the word what? Instead, it has the word who. That's a fundamental question you have to come to terms to. Isaiah wrestled with that 2,000-plus years ago, and as you watch the nightly news and deal with the events in your life, do you believe that someone or something is running the world? It's a fundamental question. Do you believe that someone or something is running the world? Isaiah says, who is one who stirs the one from the east? You see, we live in a crazy year, one that seems like nothing is nailed down. Someone has said, and I've picked up on it, that it seems as if 2020, they were all caught in a snow globe and someone is shaking it thoroughly. And everything that we felt was down is up, and everything that we felt should be up is now down. Let's go back to the virus for just a moment. Of all the things, of someone or something, we're told the virus, by some experts, came as blind chance. It jumped from a vat into an intermediate host, and from the intermediate host, it made its way into the human population. Some scientists, through the scientific theory, said this is governed by blind chance, nothing more. Others theorize that the humans behind it. Conspiracy theories run amok in our day. It's the idea that I can gain an advantage through the virus politically or economically. But notice back in verse 2, Cyrus is the issue, not a virus. 
The chaos that's about to ensue is stirred up by a person, a being, an intelligent being. It's not chances, it's not what, it is who. In fact, verse 4, notice these words. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, first, and with the last, I am he. Isaiah is so dedicated to telling you that this dictator from the east is coming and he's rising that he will not even mention his name in chapter 41. He puts all the spotlight on God. He fingers God as the origin of this dictator that's rising. In fact, so important is this, the Bible wants you to know that God began everything, but he did not leave anything to chance. So vital is this, God is the first cause, and he'll be the last effect. And when the final 90 seconds of time have, tucked, have been ticked away, we'll know that the events of history have been moved by God. In fact, in chapter 46 of Isaiah, Isaiah is so at pains for you to know this, quoting God, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you see those words declaring the end from the beginning? When Isaiah writes these words on a scroll, 150 years later, Cyrus will make his first appearance. 150 years, Isaiah's predicting something through the, through the movement of God. If I had the ability today to tell you the president's name, in 2,270, and I was accurate. Would that impress anybody? That's Isaiah's message. He's not here as one who's by himself. He represents God who declares the end from the beginning. The Bible teaches that God governs all things. He governs rulers that arise, but he governs more than that. The Bible says that the weather is at the hands of God. He governs the weather. The Bible says he governs the wind, the lightning, and the snow. The Bible says animals are at his disposal, including insects. We learn from the plagues of Egypt that he's in charge of frogs and gnats. More than that, we know that he's in charge of even pain and suffering. He uses it as tools. The Bible teaches us that famine is controlled by God. Blindness is controlled by God. Deafness, paralysis, fever, and yes, every disease. The Bible teaches that there is one and one only who rules the world. Cyrus isn't a fluke in Isaiah's day. He's intentional. There is one who's ruling. COVID-19 is not a fluke in our day. There is one that rules the world. Your dysfunctional family, your challenges in your life, they're governed by an almighty God who rises and falls everything. God doesn't work like karma because he's not cruel. And that's our second question. Is God cruel? In fact, let's leave Isaiah for a moment. What is being happening in Isaiah's time over centuries can be better seen if we fast forward to Jesus' day. We've moved in our Bible up 700 years, and we're at the evening of Jesus' crucifixion. Here is one named Simon, or we know him as Peter. Jesus says this to Peter, Luke chapter 22. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now keep those words in front of us for just a moment. Now again, like any good southern boy, any good southern girl, Peter's got two names, Simon Peter. That's a joke, by the way. It's as good as they get. <laughs> Look what Jesus says to him. Satan has come to ask permission that he may shake you, he may sift you. Doesn't that raise questions for you as you read that? If we weren't in the drama of the crucifixion, we'd want to take that into a classroom and really analyze that, put it in a laboratory. What is Satan doing asking God for permission? And is God going to say yes? In fact, God does say yes. Now, why would he do this? Again, our crucial question here is God cruel. If he governs things like disease and paralysis and Cyrus as well as virus, including Simon's life, is it that God is cruel? Well, the truth is God and Satan can work on the same project for entirely different outcomes. God and Satan can work on the same project for entirely different outcomes. And both are active in our day as they were in Peter's day. So when Satan comes and asks God for permission to sift or to shake Peter, what's that about? If you may not know the story, just a few verses earlier, we see an incredible confidence from Peter. In fact, Jesus makes this prediction. He says, all of you will turn away. All of you will turn away. And Peter steps forward and says, if they all turn away, I will not. He's dripping with self-confidence. He's in a precipitately dangerous place. And so at this moment, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, I want you to be aware before anything happens, the Satan has come and he's asked me permission to sift you. And implicit in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22 is the words, yes, I've granted him permission. Just as Cyrus is a tool in Isaiah's day, Satan is a tool in Peter's life. Because God can use even Satan to scrub his finest china. He can use even Satan and suffering and evil to accomplish his purpose. There's power here in front of us in this. In fact, we know on the other side of all these events, on the side of the cross and the resurrection, Peter is a remarkably much better leader, a much better human, a much better husband, if you will, much better father, all those things because of the temptation he went through. See, there are certain degrees of grace that God elevates us to because of the events he permits in our lives. God can use suffering and evil as a tool in his hand, and yes, he even punishes sin. So the question is, God cruel, back in Isaiah 41. Again, the scene in verses 1 through 7 is a courtroom where all the nations are brought in. The coastland nations are brought to judgment. Look what happens here, something powerful. Is God cruel in this to let all this sift through for more than a century? Verse 17. Verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. 
I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys, and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Like any good coach is aware of the conditioning of his athletes in spring training that by the fourth quarter, the second half, the other team wears out. There's a long view in mind by a coach. Any good teacher in a classroom doesn't just teach for a test, do they? They teach with the long view in mind of graduation, of a better citizen, of a better human. If a teacher and a coach can do that, can there not be a God in heaven who lets history meander like a backwater tributary of a river in order to find its final conclusion? And all the while, God has his eye on the ball. He says, even in the midst of these turbulent, evil days, I've got my eye on the poor. I will not let them go thirsty. I will not let them go needy. What's the, what's the ultimate purpose in all this? Verse 20 teaches us this. Verse 20 teaches us the ultimate purpose in Cyrus' day as well as our day, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. That's the big purpose. That the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Don't you realize that is all of history's purpose? We receive mercy and he gets the credit. We receive mercy and he receives glory. Again, this is the big purpose to your life and my life. We receive mercy and he gets the credit for that. He doesn't work like karma. He isn't cruel. Here's a third question for God. In a chaotic year, does God truly care? Verse 10 ought to be a, a verse that is among your top 10, among your top 20. It deserves your memorization. This is a verse that fathers and mothers will memorize to teach the generations to come, to keep their head, to give them poise in the midst of ancient times. There's five pillars of fearlessness in verse 10. There's five pillars to it. I want you to see all five if you're given to anxiety. Listen to the Word of God. Fear not. I am with you. I am your God. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Friend, if I, was, if I was to come at the moment of your greatest need and I were to look at you in a bed of a hospital or on your dying moment or even in some kind of crisis of your family, if I were to take your hand and I were to say, put your eyes in mine, and I'd say, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be right here with you. If your husband, if your wife did that, that'd be one thing. But all of us are finite. Look at the five pillars. He says, first, I am with you. Secondly, I am your God. I have infinite power. I will not bend. I will not break. I will strengthen you. I will help you, and I will uphold you. Here's your five again. I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you, and I will uphold you. God of heaven in 2020 or 2040 or whatever comes along our way, he says, I am your God. I am over you. 
I sustain you by giving you strength within. I am by your side. I work from inside you. I will help you, and no matter where your enemy, no matter where the challenge may come, I will cover you on your backside, your back six, and I will uphold you from underneath you. I am over you, by you, inside you, around you, and underneath you. And that's the God of the nations who calls the coastlands in for an account. So whether it's the world's turbulence or whether it's your personal turbulence, whether you're a college young person who doesn't know what the future holds, or you're on the other end of life or you've lost a spouse and you're concerned if anybody will be with you in your moment of need, if you're in Jesus Christ today, there is a God who says, I am with you. I will walk with you. Verse 10 is worthy of your memory. Verse 10 is worthy of putting on a a vanity mirror. It's worthy of putting in your car. It's worthy of writing it out and dedicating it to heart. And every time the news says, and every time the political parties say there's turbulence coming, to recite, no, there's a God who loves me, who strengthens me, who knows me. And if you're worried about a paycheck tomorrow, no, There's a God who's fighting for me, and he will uphold me by his righteous right hand. Does God truly care? But in 2020, is God speaking to us? Is he giving us a message? If this truly is a year like few other years, this is a year that it seems like all of us are being shaken as if we're a snow globe and a gift store someplace is God speaking to us remember the seven-year-old little boy who says mom I think God gave us the coronavirus remember Lance the Pennsylvania man who said I've got a message for you is that right is that true at least three big things I think God is saying to us in 2020 First, Isaiah reminds us in chapter 2 of verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? You are not the master of your own fate. Trump's not running the world. Biden's not running the world. Dr. Fauci's not running the world. Governor Abbott is not running things. You are not the master of your own ceremonies. You are finite. You are a reed that's given to wind, and you will sift, and you will be shaped, and you'll be shaken. God is telling us in this year, locate your hope in a secure place. Some of you have your hope located on the 3rd of November. Some of you have your hope located on the girl or the boy that might say yes. Some of you have your hope located on a career and money and a college education, and those are all going to go away. If your hope is located in your beauty, you will be old one day. If your hope is located in your intelligence, you will be feeble in dementia one day. Put your hope in a secure place. Hope in the God of verse 10. Why are you regarding man? The second message 2020 is teaching us, judgment is coming. The United Nations has not gotten together and air-conditioned hell. 
That's beyond their purview. The Bible's teaching us that there is, we might call it a Christianized version of karma. He does not work by karma, it's too cruel, but there is a Christianized version of it, you might say. Located over in the book of Acts in chapter 12, there is a regional ruler by the name of Herod, whom Luke tells us, the author of Acts, gave a speech one day. It was a powerful speech because the people championed him as if he were God. And the Bible tells us before the sun went down that evening, Herod has breathed his last. And the Bible teaches us that God brought the death, the premature death, if you will, of Herod as a judgment of God to teach everybody he's not God. There's no vacancy, no help wanted sign in heaven. God does on times bring judgment in particular places. A friend of mine that was a pastor this past week spoke of a church he had served in. It was a challenging church. It's like dog years. Every year is like seven years as you pastor those kind of church. He said that when he got there, it was about a year into it, things were just humming along when he discovered that the music minister's wife and the chairman of deacons were having an affair in a small church, and it rocked the church. The two decided to break up their God-given marriages and then unite together. Instead of calling it adultery, they thought it was God's will that they unite together. Six months after they said, I do, they were in a wreck where one died and the other had a leg amputated. Every so often, you don't have to be brilliant, you don't have to be a prophet to say, God is sending us a message. And 2020 is a thunderclap moment from God to teach us we need to realign and repent. You know, if thunder and lightning happen, you know what I do? I'm really bright. I take shelter. And if the world is turbulent, and I believe that someone runs it, not something, I believe that someone runs it, not something, I want to think to myself, not necessarily he's after me, but I need to be living right and holy and to make sure that I have my eye on the ball. Do you, believing friend, my Christian friend, do you have your eye on the ball? Are you living for the right purposes? The third big message that God is speaking in every year and in every amount of turbulence is that he's coming again. The Bible teaches us Christ's promise that Christ himself will return. In fact, in one extended period of teaching, Jesus said, my return, how will you know that I'm coming? He said, it'll act like birth pains. We've had, Tracy and I, Tracy, had three children. I was the chauffeur. <laughs> and in each of the three, there was a moment where she knew this baby's coming. And we had organized, we would prepared, we would planned. We made our way to the hospital, all three of those. The birth pains. They're like tremors before an earthquake. They signal us that something is coming. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, those birth pains will be wars, famines, and earthquakes. 
You say, Pastor, they're always happening. Yes, they're always happening, but there'll be something unique about those that God's people will figure it out on that moment. Am I saying that Christ is going to return this year? I'm not in the planning department with God. I'm in the welcoming department when he comes. I don't know that he's coming, but I do know that when I see tremors and birth pains, I'm reminded of what Jesus says, you must be ready for there's a day when the Son of Man is coming in an hour and you do not expect it. Jesus gave us one of the most simple analogies to pick this up on. He said, if you knew a thief was coming later this evening, you'd take preparation, wouldn't you? You'd probably call a locksmith. You may arm yourself in some way if you knew the thief was coming. You know about thieves? They generally, they're, they're not intelligent people, they generally don't preview their coming. They don't give you a courtesy call. They don't give you a wake-up call. Jesus said, my coming is like a thief in the night. Only he is giving us a courtesy call. He is giving us a wake-up moment. Are you awake at this moment? Are you awake to life and the urgencies of what's happening? Are you aligned with the right purposes? Or are you asleep like so many? Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.